0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Crimopedia. I'm glad to have you here today. I have a really interesting case for you today, one that you may be familiar with as it is pretty recent and very controversial. The victim in this case is 40-year-old Tamla Horsford, who died in late 2018. She was born in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, which is a small set of islands north of Trinidad and west of Barbados. Tamla's family moved to the Bronx, New York in the late 1980s, and she ended up relocating to Florida, where she met her husband, Leander. Lee and Tamla had five sons together, and Tamla also grew close with her husband's daughter from a previous marriage. They eventually relocated to Cumming in Georgia, which is where today's tragedy takes place. Something I want to note in order to do this case some justice is that Cumming, Georgia is located in Forsyth County, which is a historically racist place. By 1920, there were only 30 black residents in the entire county due to an estimated 98% of them fleeing because of a group called the Knight Riders who terrorized black citizens and gave them all literally a 24-hour window to leave or suffer the consequences. Racial tensions have been deeply ingrained in this area's history, and in 1987, there was an outbreak of civil rights protests and consequently, of course, the racist counter-protests. Like I said, the long-standing racial tensions are the basis for a theory in the death of Tamla Horsford, which we'll get into later. For now, I'd just like to point out that Tamla was a black woman. The night she died in Forsyth County, she was the only black person at an adult slumber party with 12 other guests in attendance. All white people, mostly white women, and the party was hosted by a white woman. Some people think that this aspect of the story is the key to unlocking the mystery around Tamala's suspicious death. Others think differently and that the case is nothing more than a tragic accident. I'll be interested to hear about what you guys have to say because for me, I'm not exactly sure where I stand, but with that, let's just jump right in. was known to be very outgoing, likable, very sociable, but still grounded and very responsible considering she had five children. When she did have the time and could go out, everybody said she was always the life of the party. She could hold her liquor quite well and was known to be a really fun person to be around, a really bright spirit. On November 3rd, she was busy making dinner for her five kids, all boys, like I said, and this was happening before she was gonna go head off to that slumber party hosted by a sort of newish friend named Jean Myers. Tamala and Jean became friends because their sons played football together, a sport that they all shared a love for, and this party was a great opportunity for Tamla to make some new friends and enjoy being her social self. Tamla didn't really know any of the other people who were gonna be at the party, but unlike me, she wasn't afraid of that. So she finished up making dinner, grabbed a bottle of her favorite tequila to give to Jean as a gift since it was also her birthday, and headed over to the residence. Also in attendance was Jose Barrera, Jean's boyfriend, who was supposed to link up with another party-goer's husband and they were going to watch football together in another room and be away from the party, but they were still at the house. As well, who also lived in the house was Madeline Lombardi, Jean's aunt who took over the basement of the home, sort of like a granny flat. So in terms of people who lived at the house, we have Jean Myers, Jose Pereira, and Madeline Lombardi. Everybody else who was there that night was just a guest. Tamla made it to the house around 8:30 p.m., which was a bit late considering the other guests had started arriving as early as 6 p.m., but like I said, she wasn't empty-handed. She brought her tequila and an overnight bag with a little bit of marijuana. Jean turned down Tamla's gift of tequila, saying she didn't like it, and so Tamla cracked it open for herself to enjoy. Reports say that everybody in attendance was in a good mood, including Tamla, who called her husband Leander around 10 p.m. that night and then ended up FaceTiming her stepdaughter at 12.30 a.m. Her stepdaughter was either pregnant or had just had a baby, and so Tamla was in great spirits on the phone with her, showing everybody her stepdaughter and talking about her, showing off how proud she was. During the party, Tamla had mentioned to Madeline Lombardi that she was excited to get out of the house for a girls' night. She also mentioned to Jean that since she's always around boys with her husband and her five kids, it's nice to be around women for once. According to everybody there, Tamla was excited for this party, as expected for someone who's so notoriously sociable. The next morning, on November 4th, Jean's aunt, Madeline Lombardi, came up to where Jean and Jose were sleeping in their own bedroom around 8.45 a.m. and knocked on their door stating that something was wrong. She said that Tamla was lying in the grass in the backyard and wasn't moving. According to her statement, Jose Barrera came downstairs and eventually 911 was called at 8.59 a.m but nobody really knew what was going on. Madeline later told police that before she even notified Jean and Jose that Tamla was laying on the grass outside and not moving, she got on her knees and said a prayer and then meekly knocked on the door of the couple to notify them. This timeline would come up later, appearing to some people as suspicious, especially considering that Tamla is laying outside in the grass, not moving, and before you call 911, you say a prayer, meekly knock on the door, I don't know. Either way, it doesn't fit together very well for me, and I think it's important to note. There isn't a whole lot of information about what happened between the time that the trio arrived downstairs to examine Tamala and when the 911 call actually happened, but when they got out there, there Tamla was, in fact, laying in the grass face down and not moving. Interestingly, what becomes apparent in the 911 call is that nobody really checks to see if Tamla's even breathing, but they do speculate right away that she's deceased. Forsyth County, 911. Hi, yes, um, I I need an ambulance and a place to my home. What's the address? 4450 Woodlitt Court. 4450 Woodlake? Woodlet. Woodlet. okay. All right, 4450 Woodlake Court, what is your name? My name is John Myers, J-E-A-N-N-E. Okay, and your phone number 609? Yes. Okay, what's going on? Um, we had people over last night when we were drinking. Most of us went to bed. One of them stayed on the balcony. She was drinking and we just went out outside and she's laying face down in the backyard. It looks like me I'm guessing maybe she fell off the balcony, but she's stiff, okay is she breathing i, I don't I don't know if she's safe down okay how, how old is she' forty one in that nine one one call there is a large gap of silence that I did edit out, but As you just heard, Jean speculates pretty much right away that Tamla may have fallen off the backyard balcony and landed in the grass. For some context, The house is situated on a hill that drops off into the backyard, so when you're at the front of the house, it looks like the main floor is on ground level. But if you walk straight through it and exit out on that floor, you're actually coming out back onto a balcony, and it's really the basement where Madeline Lombardi lives that is on ground level with the sort of leeward side of this hill into the backyard. So you can imagine that this balcony faces the backyard and is right above what would technically be Madeleine Lombardi's own front door to her sort of granny flat situation. So this theory that Jean is putting forward to the 911 operator that Tamla must have fallen over the railing into the backyard is something that would have happened directly outside of Madeleine's door. Given the scene and the positioning of Tamla's body just on first glance, I think this theory is a reasonable conclusion to come to. However, upon closer examination, some discrepancies do arise that question the integrity of this working idea. During the 911 call, eventually Jose Barrera takes over and is remarkably less Distressed than Sean, although it's hard to judge someone based off of how they react during 911 calls. I know that, but just thought it was worth mentioning and may become important later in the story. Jose does finally check if Tamala is breathing, which she isn't, and he also states on the call that there are cameras specifically pointing out in the direction of where Tamala would have fallen if that's what happened, which would have captured everything. And coincidentally, they also have a home security system connected with Jean's phone through a mobile app that tells them exactly when people enter and exit the home and via which entrances. In theory, this type of data is perfect. They could have figured out exactly when Tamla may have left out onto the balcony and obviously it would have shown that she never would have come back inside. But this is important to keep in mind. As the timeline of events begins to unfold in the investigation into Tamla's death, what this home security system picks up Becomes especially important. Officers do eventually arrive at the residence at 9:07 a.m., and that's when Tamala was pronounced deceased, then and there. Like I said, the positioning of her body on first glance makes sense in terms of someone who would have just fallen off of a balcony, but once police got up close and personal, it was noted that Tamala's head was actually not tilted to one side or the other as one might expect for a victim who suffered a fall. You can imagine that someone's head, if falling face down, sort of ends up resting either on one cheek or the other once the person hits the ground, but instead, Tamala's face was directly put pushed into the grass and dirt. She was also found shoeless and jacketless with her right arm laying parallel to her body and her left arm positioned slightly upwards over her head with her elbow bent at a near 45 degree angle. That's honestly just me eyeballing it. But there was no obvious injury to Tamla that would have caused her death other than the proposition that she had fallen from the balcony. So either way, it needed to be looked into. Her body was sent to the Georgia Bureau of Investigation for a formal autopsy and authorities then drove her vehicle back to her family home and notified her husband and children that Tamla was in fact deceased. Unfortunately, when she left for Jean Meyer's house that night after feeding her children, she would never come home alive. Everyone who attended the party the previous night was accounted for and those who were still present at the house at the time of Tamala's discovery were all put into one room, together. (laughs) And those who had already left were called back to come to the residence and all put into another room, all together. This is a big no-no and it comes up a lot when people discuss this case online. The witnesses were not separated or had their contact limited in any way which is known to lead to potential witness contamination. The human memory is exceptionally bad at something called source management. When we witness and recall events, our minds have a tendency to be a little bit unsure if something happened on a certain day or maybe it was the time before then. And witnesses, when all smushed into one room together, are obviously going to be talking about the elephant in the room. There's a woman deceased in the backyard. A witness may take what another witness says and unconsciously transfer it into their own memory, even if what the other person saw was completely different from what they saw. And this person would obviously be none the wiser. This can seriously jeopardize witness accounts, and frankly, police should have known better. In terms of witnesses, though, there is a lot of names in this case, as the party in question had 12 attendees not including Tamala, which is according to the case report. So for simplicity's sake, I'm just going to leave out all the names except for the key players involved who are already mentioned. John Myers, Jose Barrera, Madeline Lombardi, and Leander Horsford, Tamla's husband. If you're interested in learning about what the other partygoers had to say for themselves in their police interviews, all that information is fully available online and I'll link it in the show notes. Like I mentioned before, the idea for this party was to celebrate Jean's birthday with the other mom she had met through the local youth football league, the same one that Tamla's son was a part of, and for most people to spend the night at her house as to not worry about drinking and driving. People began arriving at 6 p.m., like I said, Tamla around 8.30 p.m., and the party continued steadily until approximately 1 in the morning, which is when it began to wind down. But Jean claims that Tamla was alone in trying to keep the party going as she's a mother of five and doesn't get out much anymore, but mostly everyone else was ready for bed. People at the party actually said that Tamla was drinking the tequila she had got for Jean to excess and smoking marijuana, but Tamla's family insists that it's not out of character. Tamla was known to be a good time when she could go out and she could hold her alcohol quite well, which, according to videos that Jose Barrera took at the party, seems to match up with Tamla's demeanor. Some of the partygoers were even suspect of Tamla doing cocaine, which Jean discusses in her statement, saying, I don't want to speak negative because she's a good woman, but maybe she partied a little too much, before denying that anyone was even close to doing cocaine. It seems that sometimes people were put off by Tamla's drinking and smoking, and sometimes they were all for it. Jean, in her own police interview, called Tamila the female Bob Marley when talking about her marijuana use. By all accounts, it was quite clear that Tamla stood out among the crowd that night, whether it be for her skin tone, her marijuana usage, or what. But given the contents of all the police interviews, it's clear, at least to me in my opinion, that Tamila didn't really mesh with the whole white suburban soccer mom thing, and people had a lot to say about her behavior that night. It seems from the interviews that the partygoers were all longtime friends, some of whom went way back and were somewhat put off by Tamla's overly friendly, highly sociable nature. Only a few of the people in attendance had even met Tamala more than once before this party. Tamala didn't know anyone when she came. It seems that the people who didn't know Tam thought she maybe had been partying too hard, drinking to excess, smoking pot, something about cocaine, despite Tamala's friends and family knowing that she could drink almost anybody under the table. It seems that a picture was being painted of Tamla, of her being out of control the night of November 3rd, and this fit perfectly in line with the theory that Jean Myers posed to police that she must have drunkenly and clumsily fallen over the balcony railing to her death. Jean Myers stated that at 10.30 p.m., two female guests had left the party. According to the home security system, another left at 1.47 a.m., one at 4.10, one at 7.45, two at 8.30 a.m., only 15 minutes before Tamla's body was discovered by Madeline Lombardi. The last time Tamla was seen alive in the house was confirmed to be when one of the guests who was leaving at 1.47 a.m. saw her just shortly after Jose Barrera had said he'd also seen her awake. The timestamps of the partygoers leaving were scattered amongst unexplained instances of doors opening and closing. After the guests left at 1.47 a.m., the notification system recorded the back door to the home opening at 1.49 a.m., closing at 1.50 a.m., only a minute later, and then opening again at 1.47 a.m., never to be closed. This door was discovered to still be open when Tamla was found in the morning. Interestingly, the individual who left at 1.47 a.m. stated that it was only her and Tamla awake at this time. There are a few discrepancies in witness accounts regarding whether or not Tamla was planning to stay the night or if she was up waiting for a ride home. I guess Jean thought that Tamla was staying the night in the bedroom of her oldest son when Jose thought that she was waiting for a ride home, but according to the witnesses, Tamla was last seen on her way out to smoke one last cigarette. However, despite all that, that guest who left at one forty-seven stating it was was only her and Tamla. the home security system timestamps indicate that the garage door, like the back door, was opened, shut, and then opened again, also never to be closed. This information tells us that one other person must have also been present, but who? A few days later, the Georgia Bureau came back with a full autopsy report stating that the cause of Tamla's death was blunt force trauma related to a fall, and the manner of death was an accident citing her high blood alcohol level of 0.238, as well as traces of marijuana and Xanax, which nobody seems to know where that came from, as well, the medical examiner also pointed to the post-mortem positioning of her body being apparently consistent with a fall. However, in Jose Barrera's interview, he states to police that somebody allegedly moved Tamla's left arm from its initial position of being parallel to her side, just like her right arm, to the bent elbow position it was found in. If this is true, some people may argue that her position was actually inconsistent with a fall, especially considering the injuries to Tamla's right wrist. Tamala's right wrist had an open fracture, which was initially thought to be proof of her falling and attempting to soften the blow, but if you recall, this arm was not outstretched in any way indicating her trying to break a fall. It was completely parallel to her body. Her internal injuries consisted of her second cervical vertebrae being fractured, there was a laceration on one of the ventricles of her heart, and there was bleeding in her brain. There was some bruising on her left forearm, her thumb and left pointer finger, her forehead, her upper eyelid and nose, as well as her right temple and one on her chin. But other than this minor bruising, I guess you can say, Tamla's face that was, for lack of a better word, smushed into the earth was perfectly intact. Tamala's father met with investigators and was attempting to be the advocate for a second look at the circumstances of her death. Already he could smell the inconsistencies in the witness statements about Tamala's alleged demeanor. You know, the videos show her being cool, calm, and collected, like she was known, but everyone else says she was drinking to excess and out of control. But he knew Tamla. She was not the type to drink to excess, at least her version of excess, and lose total control as the witnesses seemingly make out to be true. Pamela could handle herself. Like I said, she was notoriously cool, calm, and collected, as well as responsible. Remember, she had five boys to take care of. As well, Tamla, like I mentioned before, was from the Caribbean islands and lived in Florida for a long time. She was known for always complaining about how cold it was in Georgia when she moved there because she was not well acclimated. Records for the night of her death show that it was between 35 and 40 degrees Fahrenheit, which translates to a fluctuation of about one and a half to four degrees Celsius. It was cold. It was only just above freezing, and Tamla was found deceased outside without shoes or a jacket, which doesn't seem to match up to the accounts of her behavior in cold weather, according to the people who know her the best. Unfortunately, her father's pleas were dismissed and the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office closed her case officially on February 20th of 2019, more than three months after she had died. Tamala's case was not initially reported on too extensively. That was until Jose Barrera, the boyfriend of Jean Myers, was fired from his position get this, with the Forsyth County PD as a pre-trial services officer for illegally obtaining the incident report of Tamela's death from the court system, as well as information regarding a restraining order between Jean Myers and Tamala's best friend Michelle that was filed after Tamala's death, although he was not charged for doing any of this. Once this information hit the media, it catapulted the investigation, or I guess lack thereof, into the limelight, grabbing the attention of many celebrities online and honestly made this case even more ripe for conspiracy. After Tamla's death began receiving an incredible amount of attention online, on June 5th of 2020, the Horsford family attorney Ralph Fernandez wrote a letter to Tamla's husband Leander, which was made public, where he states that, in his opinion, homicide is a strong possibility in this case. This was absolutely shocking to everybody, and you can find this letter in full on the internet, but again, I'll also link this in the show notes. The circumstances of Tamla's death simply did not sit right with a lot of people, and Fernandez recognizes that witness statements do conflict. He also mentions how somebody allegedly handled Tamla's body before law enforcement arrived, likely referring to the incident where Jose Barrera mentions that somebody had moved her left arm. And, of course, he mentions how the investigation was potentially compromised with Jose's meddling in the document system, and potentially even compromised with his affiliation to the Forsyth County Police Department. Fernandez states in part, quote, let me conclude by telling you that my years of experience lead me to believe that 80% of cases where African Americans die under mysterious circumstances end up closed or cold because there are no videos and the only witnesses are bad guys or good guys that deep down are really bad. Then you have cases where law enforcement does a poor job and cares little to investigate thoroughly because of some connection or association to the perpetrators. End quote. I've really never seen anyone who works in the law profession spell out something so accusatory, I guess you can say, in a letter like this to the family, but... I think it goes without saying that Tamala's family believes that her death was the result of foul play, specifically stating that tamlo was not a sloppy drunk and it was highly unlikely she would simply lose her footing and fly over a balcony while smoking a cigarette, let alone even be outside in the middle of the night in November of her own accord without shoes or a jacket. As well, if you'll remember those cameras that Jose stated during the 911 call that would have recorded whatever happened in Tamla, somehow had their footage deleted. In an email sent by Jean to one of the investigators, she states that she must have deleted the footage, resulting in one of the most convenient oopsies I've ever heard of. To make things even worse, it turns out that Jean Myers actually stepped in the middle of police's interview with Madeline Lombardi and interrupted it in order to try and deliver the investigating team some gift cards. In her own interview, detective Mike Christian outright addresses this and says that he's unable to accept gifts. Why would John be trying to give the investigators gift cards? Whether this behavior is insidious in nature or not, I think it's strange at the very least. Additionally, there is some evidence to suggest that a few of Tamela's injuries may have occurred post-mortem, as discovered by an independent pathologist hired by the Horsford family. Her open right wrist fracture accompanied a sizable laceration, yet there was not a single drop of blood pooled anywhere other than a small spot on her sleeve. In an interview with one of the women at the party, this person states to police, quote, I don't understand. I mean, I've sat on that deck a million times. I've looked and I've tried and I don't understand. I thought maybe she got sick or something and was vomiting and maybe she was leaning over and maybe that's how she did it, but I seriously don't get it at all. To be honest, I have to agree with this partygoer. I don't really get it either. Only a few days after the Horsford family lawyer, Ralph Fernandez, sent that polarizing letter to Leander, the Forsyth County Sheriff, Ron Freeman, requested the GBI to reopen and reinvestigate the case, but there's been no updates since then on the progression of this investigation. Until those results come out, all we can really do is speculate. And I'm really not trying to point the finger at anybody in this case as to being responsible for the death of Tamla. I just think that the circumstances of the case are interesting enough to warrant a bit of a closer look. And at the very least, I think some people have some actions that they need to answer for. But like I said, all we can really do is speculate. Some people online speculate that more people at the party at the very least know what happened to Tamla. Some people go even further and say that due to the racially charged history in Forsyth County, ingrained into every system including law enforcement and soccer mom culture, that Tamla's death possibly could have been the result of a meticulously carried out hate crime. But again, all of this is speculatory, and for every person who's championed alongside Ralph Fernandez and the Horsford family to have the GBI reopen the case, there's another person who thinks it was just an incredibly tragic accident. As Ralph Fernandez said, the truth did not have a chance with this case really. Obviously we know how he feels, we know what he thinks happened, but a lot of the things that he pointed out in his letter to Leander I think are worth looking at. Tamla's injuries, the position of her body, was that actually how she fell or was Jose Barrera telling the truth? Somebody did move her. Why would they want to do that? How much do we have to consider the racist history in Forsyth County? What about the complicated relationship between Jose Barrera and the Forsyth County PD? And really, none of that even has anything to do with the whole other ordeal of the mishandling of witness statements and evidence. There's obviously a lot going on here. I'm not entirely sure exactly what I believe, but I do know that evidence was clearly mishandled at the very least. If you wanna throw away everything circumstantial and everything that seems in the slightest bit suspicious, the mishandling of witnesses and the potential contamination of their stories, as well as the deletion of the security footage is questionable at the very least. What I also know is that Tamla was a loving mother of five boys and was a wife whose life was ended too soon and this is true whether or not you believe her death was an accident or a homicide. Tamla was full of life and love and some more investigating definitely needs to happen in order to either serve justice if necessary but at the very least some closure for the family. This entire ordeal has put Tamla's family all of the partygoers that night, the police investigators, everybody involved, through a whirlwind of drama since it happened. Again, whether or not you believe this was an accident or a homicide, this case needs to be closed for the closure of everybody involved. If you or someone you know may have information regarding Tamala's death, you can contact the Forsyth County Sheriff's Office tip line at 770 888. 3466. My heart really goes out to Tamla's family, especially her five children. She was known to be such an incredible mother, an incredible friend, and such a bright light to be around. And I know that she is missed dearly. Thanks everybody for listening. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already so you don't miss another episode. You can follow me on Instagram at crimopediapod for updates on cases and to know when the next one's coming out. Until next time, I'll talk to you all soon.